I hear they're all going after me. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A., 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, and coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not?, Radio Free Brooklyn, fine, uh, fine affiliates in parts unknown, and, of course, Radio Sputnik five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure that we like to call the Bradcast. Coming up on today's program... Uh, well, uh, let me set it up this way. Uh, writing over at TPM, Liz Seaton, who's the uh, interim director of Justice at Stake campaign, she writes, Are state legislatures breaking all records for attempting to rig our courts? The results are still coming in, yet it appears to be a banner year for elected politicians trying both new and well-established ways to bully, politicize, or pack impartial courts. What's alarming is that they are succeeding, she writes. Their efforts in Kansas, Wisconsin, and North Carolina have passed into law. These politicians want to rewrite the definition of justice from being blind to being blindly partisan. Kansas, she writes, is over the top among states engaging in court bashing this year. Legislatures in Topeka have made no secret of their unhappiness with the Kansas Supreme Court's rulings about funding public education and a constitutional crisis could be on this on the horizon. Recent headlines are asking whether the entire court system may be shut down. And by the way, it's more than just headlines. It's actually the rule of law is asking whether the entire court system may need to be shut down. Matthew Menendez, the Brennan Center attorney who filed the lawsuit that led to the Kansas legislature and its governor, Sam Brownback, its radical right wing extremist Republican Reaganist governor, Sam Brownback, uh, that lawsuit uh, that challenged, well, actually that led to the passing of the law to defund the state judiciary. And now another lawsuit to kill the bill that could defund the state judiciary. Matthew Menendez will be here to explain all of this extraordinary fine mess. Uh, last time he was on uh, on the program, he said that he had never seen anything like this. Well, now a trigger has been pulled in Kansas that could actually defund the entire Kansas state court system. 
Thanks to this law passed by uh, the Republicans out there, signed by Republican Governor Sam Brownback. Is that confusing? I understand it might be. But don't worry, Matt Menendez will be here uh, to explain it all uh, to explain it all shortly. Also, a little bit later today, uh, Bernie, Bernie Sanders was apparently a hit at Jerry Falwell's Liberty University yesterday. We played a little bit of his uh, of his speech on the show yesterday uh, before an audience of 12,000 students there at the largest Christian college in the world up in uh, in Virginia, regarded to be very right wing, very conservative. And yet there was Bernie finding common ground with the students. He, he got a pretty warm reception and uh, and we'll have some of the uh, some of the comments from the students after his speech yesterday it was very interesting and frankly underscores what he had, what Bernie Sanders has been saying is that no, uh, he's not some, uh, you know, crazy uh, left wing uh, radical that his positions are actually pretty much right down the middle as far as what the country believes. Populist positions. I know the media and the folks on the right and no doubt very soon folks in the Democratic Party want to paint him as some sort of radical lefty. They're welcome to do that if they want. They're welcome to start every single uh, article about him with the phrase that uh, he's a uh, socialist. But the fact of the matter is the positions that he holds are the positions that the country holds. And his argument has been if he can get uh, that word out, if he can get out what he actually believes in, what he's actually calling for, that he will be supported, not just by Democrats who are already showing their support. He's now leading. Uh, he's got a huge lead at this point in New Hampshire and in Iowa at this point. Uh, but uh, that these positions would be popular around the country once America hears them. If uh, his comments at Liberty University yesterday are any indication, uh, perhaps Bernie Sanders is right. So we'll get to that a little bit uh, a little bit later. Uh, but of course, the big news out here in Los Angeles, it rained last night. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Hi, Des that's Desi Doyen, <laughs> our producer, of course, my co-host on the Green News Report, our environmental maven. You were here. You can attest. I can. I can rained. testify. It actually rained. And Actual water falling from the sky. And not only did it rain. But uh, we uh, and we talk about this in our latest Green News report. We are in the middle of uh, what they're now describing as a 500 year flood, uh, not flood, yeah. 500 year drought. <laughs> kind of the opposite of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the flood that's coming. That's stay yeah. tuned for that. In the meantime, 500 year drought. Um, and and so it has been so hot and so dry for so long and for so many years, uh, you know, without rain, particularly down here in Southern California that uh, it actually woke me up when it started raining last night in the middle of the night, 3 a.m. It started raining. This was enough to wake me up, and apparently I was not alone because I went on to Twitter to make some uh, clever comment about what is this falling from the sky at 3 a.m., <laughs> and apparently I wasn't the only one. Uh, all kinds of people were taking to Twitter to comment on rain. That's how rare it is. Christian Castro said... To anyone that is up in L.A., go outside and feel the rain. I can feel it wash away all my fakeness. <laughs> so he, Brian Meza said on Twitter said, uh, it's really coming down right now, listening to the rain. Hannah Cochran said, the loveliest thing just happened. I woke up to the sound of rain. 
Uh, someone named uh, Catherine said, this rain. Someone uh, else said, praise Jah for the rain. Shannon Cassidy said, was thinking, what idiot is watering their garden at 3 a.m.? We're in a drought. <laughs> Uh, then I realized it's rain. People really don't realize how strange it is when you have not had rain in such a long time. You really do. You you really are surprised by the sound of it again. People, you do miss it. People must be listening to this program in the rest of the country I saying, know. what the hell are these people talking about? But yes, that's how bad it is. Uh, Natalie Holtzman, love being woken up to the sound of rain, even if it's 3 a.m. This is just, uh, it was so funny that everyone else was saying this. Awakened by the sound of sweet rain, said Suzanne uh, Marquise. Uh, uh, Brenda Urban, woken up by the pouring rain, so nice. Uh, Ruth Talk said, can't sleep, too excited about the sound of rain on my roof. (laughs) Please Please be the beginning of the end of this uh, horrid drought. Well, and uh, someone else, uh, Molly Ng, said, "It's raining rain." Hallelujah. <laughs> uh, when we got, uh, it really is amazing that rain, and it wasn't even that heavy a rain, but it was a pretty good rain that it would get that kind of of response out here. Um, at the same time, we had reported yesterday on this show on these horrible fires that are taking place up in nor- uh, Northern California because of the drought. Uh, Tinderbox does remind me when we post uh, today's program at bradblog.com. Let's try to put a link to some of those videos of that guy who was driving, trying to escape one of those fires up in uh, Northern California? Yes, there was one uh, one homeowner who had the presence of mind or the craziness of mind to actually film his exit through a tunnel of fire that took probably about a couple minutes as he traveled through just b- both sides of the road on fire uh, in the middle of the forest as he was trying to escape. He obviously made it out safely, was, but it's very apocalyptic. He it was looks driving like and driving for, you know, forever, it seems like and on every side of him trees fires lamp poles cars uh, uh houses houses completely in flames as it he drove through it literally looked like something out of the movies I, I don't know uh i'm i'm surprised he got out alive to be frank it was it was that horrifying but so that was going up in northern california um and uh, we also talked yesterday on the show and and it had led to uh how many people uh, for something like uh 400 500 houses I think destroyed. It, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly where we are but it's over 500 houses are gone now tens of thousands were uh, evacuated from the area we talked about that and at the same time out in Japan last week hundred thousand had to be evacuated because of the rains this is climate change this is what happens. We are going to see more and more of this, uh, this, these, this extreme weather, uh, extreme fires. Uh, as soon as we got off the air after finishing talking about that, we then get the word that flash floods killed eight up on the border in uh, Utah, Arizona. A wall of water swept away two vehicles carrying women and children in a Utah, Arizona border town, killing at least eight people, leaving five others missing. Uh, And oddly enough, uh, AP in reported this uh, pointed out that this is a community that served as a home base for polygamous sect leader Warren Jeffs. Why was that in this uh, story? It it was unclear, but as reading through it, uh, apparently the women and children who are still unidentified uh, who who were killed here 
Uh, they were in an SUV, and apparently they were they had uh, what was it uh, braids and long skirts, oh. and were being pulled from a car in the path of a torrent of water. These were the ones who escaped. So uh, perhaps that's what the reference is all about. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Lydia Weiler, one of the folks who uh, her SUV was hemmed in by the floodwater, said she's never seen a storm like this in the whole 20 years that she lived there. Uh, bodies were found two and a half miles from the scene. That's oh. how uh, in, in crazy and insane this water was that just came out of nowhere. And they have flash floods out there, the slot canyons uh, in, in Zion National Park, which are beautiful. They had cleared them out because they had had this warning about uh, flash flooding could be occurring. Uh, these people apparently did not get the warning. But uh, buckle up, people. Uh, this is climate change. And uh, to that end, uh, yet I should say, uh, buckle up, uh, people who aren't Republicans, this is climate change. Because if you're a Republican, apparently you don't believe in climate change. It's not happening at all. It's uh, all of this stuff. Is this just weather? It's just weather. It's a 500-year drought because it's weather. Because every 500 years this happens. Um, well, that may be about to change in the U.S. House. A coalition of House Republicans, according to National Journal, is gearing up to make waves by calling for action to fight climate change. This coming on the eve of Pope Francis's visit to Capitol Hill. Ten Republicans, Desi Doyen, ten Republicans. You're making a face. You're not impressed? Uh, ten Republicans have so far signed on to a resolution affirming that human activity contributes to climate change and endorsing action to respond to the threat of Earth's claiming, uh, changing climate. The resolution is expected to be unveiled as early as Thursday. This is sponsored by uh, Congressman Chris Gibson, a New York Republican. Uh, he says that uh, this is a call for action to study how humans are impacting our environment and to look for consensus on areas where we can take action to mitigate the risks and balance our impacts, Gibson told the National Journal. So you're making a face, Desi Doyen. Why the face? <laughs> this is something good. It's movement in the positive, in in the right direction. What's wrong with you? This, you should be celebrating. It, it is true that that is an improvement among the House Republicans to have even a small group come out and actually say something along the lines of, hey, man-made climate change is real, or a part of it might be real. But the part that I take exception to is when he says we need to act to study. So acting to study the issue is not acting on the issue. To study, to find ways study we can have... Study how humans are impacting our environment. To study how humans... I think we have about 150 years of study on this. We know what's happening. We know that human activity is causing the globe to warm. We know this. It is an established scientific fact that when you burn fossil fuels and release all that safely sequestered carbon dioxide and carbon that's down in the ground, when you release it into the atmosphere, it's going to warm the planet. We know this. This is not requiring any more study. What he's talking about, I think, sounds suspiciously like delay. I would love to be wrong, but it sounds like delay to me. You see, here I try to bring you some good news. <laughs> and and you just, uh, well, anyway, uh, this uh, comes... Maybe this, I'm wrong. This we'll otherwise good news, until Desi ruined it for everybody, comes uh, on the eve of... 
of the Pope, uh, who will be in, what is I think it's next, next week. week. Yeah. Next week, uh, the first time any Pope has ever spoken uh, b- before a, a joint session of Congress. And um, at least some moderate Republicans, according to National Journal, have grown frustrated what they see by their party's silence on a pressing and urging uh, problem. And uh, they're concerned that they will be even more embarrassed uh, by the Pope uh, concerning climate change because he is expected. Pope Francis is expected to speak about climate change. Oh, and he's uh, about to welcome the Iran deal as well. Or the Vatican has welcomed the Iran deal. He's going to speak about that probably would embarrass Republicans as well, because as we discussed yesterday, every single Republican in Congress is against the Iran uh, peace deal. And yet today the Vatican says, uh, quote, in a region where there are already too many conflicts to reach an agreement on a sensitive issue, uh, it's an important step, this uh, uh, deal that will promote dialogue and cooperation on other issues. That, according to Archbishop Paul Gallagher, the Holy See's Secretary for Relations with uh, with States, he told that to the IAEA in Vienna. He says, in this respect, it is worth stating once again that the way for the solution of conflicts in the Middle East, which must be addressed at global and regional levels, is that of dialogue and negotiation and not that of confrontation. He added, it's true that this path requires courageous decisions for the good of all, but it is one that will eventually lead to the desired peace in the region. The Holy See welcomes the IAEA's, it's the International Atomic Energy Agency, welcomes the IAEA's participation in the verification and monitoring of Iran's nuclear-related commitments under Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. So the Pope's going to show up. Pope's going to talk about... um, climate change and the need for action the need the the moral case for climate change uh and he's going to talk about uh, the iran deal and uh, this these uh, two republicans who don't want to hear this stuff they have made apparently a pact uh to uh to not be how did they uh, put it here uh let's see lawmakers have already pledged to avoid displays of partisanship during the pope's visit on september 24 as part of a three-day visit to Washington. Uh, yeah, sure, that's their pledge. They're going to avoid partisanship. It will be very interesting to see yes. how well they pull that off, uh, and if they, at all. They won't. Uh, and uh, so, okay, so Desi Doyen, you did not appreciate the good news of the Republicans, 10 of them, 10 out of how many? How many hundred? I am cautiously pessimistic. Cautious, okay. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to bring you good news, I doing anything that. I can to try. So maybe here's some good news. The Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott is out. This right wing uh, loon banana peel, Tony Abbott. <laughs> uh, that is a good description of him. Actually. He, he really is. Uh, he has been uh, crazy and long has been a denier, a, a climate change denier down there in Australia, where they literally I think it was a year or two ago. They had to add a new color to the weather maps because it got so hot. They added a deep purple to the weather maps. To, That's right. Uh, so they have had uh, some of the worst heat, some of the worst drought, some of the worst fires in the world. On record, yes. Down in Australia. And uh, and then 
this guy, uh, Tony Abbott, came in and uh, a climate change denier. Here was Tony, uh, Tony Abbott uh, talking, I think it was 2011. This is right after he became prime minister, ditching uh, the mm-hmm. previous prime minister who had installed a carbon tax. And Tony Abbott, when he became prime minister, ran on dismantling and repealing Killed the carbon tax. the Killed carbon it all tax. Together. Yeah. So this and is- here's what he's the guy who was the prime minister until... This late dramatic session uh, last night when he was ousted by his own party. Anyway, here was Tony Abbott back in uh, 2011. You know, I, I think that uh, the climate change science uh, is far from settled. Um, the fact that we've had, uh, if anything, cooling global temperatures over the last decade, notwithstanding continued <laughs> dramatic increases in carbon dioxide emissions, uh, suggests that... Uh, the role of CO2 is not nearly as clear as the climate catastrophists would suggest. <laughs> well, uh, let's yeah. turn to a resident climate catastrophist, as you do in. So uh, the globe has been cooling. He actually said that. And as they were adding new colors for hotness. And he was completely, and, and, and throughout his entire tenure as Prime Minister of Australia, he was completely unmoved by all of the dramatic extreme weather events that cost Australia billions of dollars from drought to incredible floods to incredibly powerful typhoons that, that hit across Australia. And, they, and the bushfires, the bushfires that oh, were just the bush ravaging. Fires, yes, there yeah. Was, yeah, that that's a that's a horrible record story of, of a bushfire that, that, you know, killed hundreds of people people literally killed hundreds of people so it's unfortunate for the folks of Australia that you know the conservatives that are in charge of their government have dismantled their renewable energy policies it's you know 20 years ago Australia was actually a leader in solar panels in installing solar panels on their rooftops a leader in solar water heaters but they have completely dismantled that and they have fallen really far behind and it's because I believe that Tony Abbott was supported by the extraction industries in Australia and by Rupert Murdoch the extract drilling industries, drillings, mines, and so forth. Right. You know, he was uh, Australian. Oh, and Rupert Murdoch. That's right. Fox right. Uh, So, so News Fox News, of course, uh, Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox mm-hmm. News and Sky News in Australia, you know, he uh, was is also a big climate denier and promoted Tony Abbott and completely tried to destroy the carbon tax and did a good job of it in all of his media properties. And he said, well, one of the things he ran on was that if we don't get rid of the carbon tax, a leg of lamb will cost $100. Which everybody resoundingly laughed at. But he believed it. He, he meant believed it. it. And it never did yeah. come true. In fact, the carbon tax was quite successful in Australia and actually returned billions in revenue. But he dismantled it anyway because Australia has a huge coal export lobby. And they had succeeded, as far as he was concerned, in, in increasing Australia's coal exports to China, except now China is not that interested in importing coal. So they have kind of a big budget deficit going on in Yes, Australia they're in big well. trouble. The economy is in, in trouble. And the party, the uh, and he's actually was the head of the so-called liberal party. Their liberal party is actually the right-wing party. Yeah. Uh, the actual liberal party uh, calls themselves Labour. But uh, yeah, so he was uh, the head of the uh, of the Liberal Party. who was ousted by his own party late last night, replaced by Malcolm by Malcolm Turnbull, 
So uh, the way it works in uh, in uh, Australia, similar to the UK, whoever heads the party that is in uh, charge of parliament becomes the prime minister. So for however long his party lets him be that. Correct. And they were worried that uh, they are going to lose in uh, in an election next year to labor. And so this is them trying to save themselves. So this is moving in the right direction, I would say. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, as it turns out, uh, is uh, disliked by many in his party, according to BBC News due to his support for climate change action yep. and gay marriage. So there you go, Des. Uh, some more good news. Do you want to be unhappy about that? Well, you know, we'll see what the, uh, what do they say in Britain? The proof is in the pudding. So we'll find out if Malcolm Turnbull is actually a uh, an advocate for climate action or if he's just uh, doing more of saying nice things with his mouth without actually meaning any of well, it. Well, I will look forward to the pudding. And in the meantime, uh, this is uh, this means that Australia, after going hard right, may be moving back, maybe moving back more to the center, to the left. Similarly, out in the U.K., Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, has, has taken over the Labour Party there. I don't want to call him a far left, but uh, compared to uh, the rest of the world these days, he's far left, a socialist, now in charge of, uh, of, of Labour out there in, uh, in the UK. Uh, Harper, up in Canada, the far right winger who runs Canada, he now, his party is apparently on the ropes up in Canada. And of course, Bernie Sanders is ascendant in the U.S., I've talked about uh, we're entering into a progressive era, and now we're seeing leaders all over the all over the world move from the right back towards the left. I think that is only a good thing. And speaking about that, we'll talk about Bernie Sanders some more uh, in a little bit. But first, coming up from the Brennan Center, from the mess that is Kansas. Speaking of hard right leadership. Uh, Matthew Menendez of the Brandon Center is with us in a moment to explain this extraordinary case, this extraordinary thing that's going on in Kansas where the governor may be defunding the entire judiciary system. All of that and more is straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. You know, we have been talking over the past uh, few months on this program a, a surprising amount 
about the state of Kansas and the problems with Kansas. And frankly, what's the matter with Kansas? Uh, and, and I'm surprised how much we've been talking about Kansas. And, and let me uh, put this right up front. I've got nothing against Kansas. I love Kansas. In fact, I, uh, I grew up next door in Missouri. Uh, for years, uh, we, we used to take uh, road, long road trips from out here in California back home to uh, back home to St. Louis. Uh, and when we uh, came out of the Colorado mountains, we would then show up in Kansas and I was always delighted to be there. It's beautiful and green and lush. And yeah, it's a little flat, but that's all right. I love it. The, the, the people, the places, the, the small towns, the great little motels, the hospitality of their people. Uh, I, I love Kansas. I, I love the state of Kansas. So I take no joy in coming on the radio Day after day, week after week, month after month, and beating the crap out of Kansas. But in fact, I'm sorry to say, they deserve it. At least their government does. And so that, I mean, this is all why it is so disturbing to see what Governor, uh, Republican Governor Sam Brownback and Republican Governor, uh, I'm sorry, Republican Secretary of State Chris Kobach are doing to the place. Kobach is is preventing tens of that we talked about it many times, preventing tens of thousands of registered voters from being able to cast their vote in the state of Kansas, either because they don't have the type of ID that he has deemed necessary for voting or because they simply can't afford to go out and track down citizenship papers to prove uh, to prove that they are citizens. Never mind that uh, Chris Kobach can't demonstrate that any of them are not citizens or that there are you know, an epidemic of non-citizens voting in Kansas, as he pretended when he ran for secretary of state since becoming secretary of state. He's been able to show like little or no voter fraud, despite running on the premise that there's this massive voter fraud in the state. Uh, he has uh, Chris Kobach has also been blocking citizen access to election results, as we recently discussed on this program with Wichita University statistician Beth Clarkson, who believes that she has found evidence of election fraud. That's different than voter fraud, which Kobach can't seem to find, but actual election fraud by someone, by insiders, by hackers. We don't know. Uh, but the evidence that she presents uh, suggests that uh, somehow uh, these results have been manipulated, in her words, by Republicans, or at least to favor Republicans. But... Uh, Kobach won't allow her to review the so-called paper trails from the 2014 election to see if she can confirm her preliminary and frankly troubling uh, numbers that she's collated from last year's computer tallied uh, and published uh, election results. Brownback, Governor Brownback, for his part, has plunged the state into desperate straits by radically cutting taxes without offsetting them, without offsetting them with revenue. To pay for those tax cuts in the bargain, schools have had to close early for lack of funding. Infrastructure is going unattended to all of that after he campaigned against Republicans in his own state legislature because they were not Republican enough. Governor Brownback radically remade the state legislature in his own image in order to run, frankly, roughshod over the state with his wild experiments in so-called conservative economics which, have I mentioned, they have failed the state miserably. In June of this year, after the state Supreme Court had uh, recently ruled against Brownback and the Republican-dominated legislature, 
finding that the state constitution requires them to restore cuts made to the state education system, the legislature actually passed a bill that was signed by Sam Brownback that would defund the judiciary in Kansas if the court ruled against them in regard to a legal matter concerning the appointment of judges, which, if I understand it correctly, Brownback wants to be done by the lower courts rather than by the state Supreme Court, on which Brownback has only one nominee. So if the state, if I understand this, uh, this law correctly, if the state Supreme Court, uh, or perhaps the court system itself, rules against the legislature, the judiciary in Kansas will be defunded. So much for the constitutional separation of powers. Here's the, a, a clip of the conversation I had uh, earlier uh, this summer in, in early June at the time um, with Brandon Center's Matthew Menendez. This was just after Brownback signed the bill that would defund the Kansas State, uh, Kansas State judiciary system if they had the temerity to rule against Brownback and the Republicans. That is what it says. It, it is incredible. I have never seen anything like this. Um, it is a radical provision, and uh, clearly there are some serious constitutional issues uh, when uh, a branch of government uh, threatens to defund another branch of government. Yeah, well, I know there are constitutional uh, restrictions at the federal level as far as the separation of, uh, of, of co-equal branches. Does that apply to uh, state legislatures versus uh, judiciary versus uh, executive branch? Or, or is that also in the Kansas Constitution uh, where, there, where that separation of power exists? The, Can the Kansas Constitution also provides for separation of power. So the judiciary is a co-equal branch of government. Uh, it has myriad duties that it is required to perform by the Kansas Constitution. Obviously, none of those could be carried out were the courts to be closed. And it would be an incredible affront to the rights of Kansans to, you know, that there's an old legal saying that there are no rights without remedies. And if courts are closed, then people will not be able to vindicate their legal rights. So that was my conversation with Matt Menendez of the Brennan Center uh, a few months back concerning this uh, bizarre Kansas law. Well, funny thing happened uh, last week, as The Atlantic reported. A district court has now ruled against the state and threw out a 2014 law passed by Republicans that took the power of appointing chief judges away from the Kansas Supreme Court and handed it to local judges. But that rather simple question of judicial administration, the Atlantic rights, could have further reaching consequences thanks to a provision in a second law passed by the legislature earlier this spring that would cut off funding for the state's entire court system if the 2014 law was struck down. Well, guess what? That 2014 law has now been struck down, at least by a district court. What does this mean for the state of Kansas? Will the governor take over the judiciary? Will they defund the entire judicial system in the state of Kansas? This is getting incredibly bizarre. Joining me again to, uh, to catch us up on the latest in this mess is Matthew Menendez. He serves as counsel for the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, where his work focuses on fair and impartial courts. Uh, Matt Menendez, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. 
Thank you for having me, Brett. Uh, good to have you back. Uh, as you heard in that clip when of our discussion a couple of months ago, you were somewhat gobsmacked by the law, it, it seems. Uh, has anything uh, changed to make you feel better about that law? And what happens now, now that the court has indeed, uh, at, le- at least uh, presumably, triggered the provision that will defund the Kansas courts? Well, what makes me feel somewhat better is that uh, immediately after we received the ruling in this case, uh, my co-counsel and I uh, had discussions with attorneys for the state and uh, were able to agree to jointly request a stay of this ruling pending appeal of the case. So in the very short term, Kansas courts will remain open, uh, business will continue to function, and uh, while that is happening, we have brought a second lawsuit that challenges specifically the defunding provision and we are seeking to have the courts of Kansas strike that provision down as a violation of separation of powers, among other things. So to be clear, because I don't think I, 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 I spelled this part out in my introduction, it was in fact you, Matt Menendez, and the Brennan Center who brought the lawsuit against the Kansas law that uh, has now been uh, successful, at least as far as the uh, district court, it, it has been stayed. For the moment, but they found that you were right. What exactly did your lawsuit uh, contend that that the, the courts have now agreed with? So the Brennan Center, along with Irana Garay and Associates, uh, Kansas lawyer, and Case Scholler, a New York law firm, represent a chief district judge in Kansas, Judge Larry Solomon. And we contended that the administrative change that stripped the Supreme Court of the ability to select district court judges violated the separation of powers by impermissibly intruding on the Supreme Court's constitutional authority to administer their court system. Does that make sense? It does. Was it that bill or was it the subsequent bill that then uh, th- that, that said if the courts disagreed on, on this or that, uh, that they would then be defunded? Was it the part of the same bill or a separate bill? It was a separate bill. In fact, it was part of the budgeting bill that was adopted this year after we had brought our lawsuit. So um, to us, it looks like a clear act intended to intimidate the judiciary to influence their ruling in a pending case. It's, It's difficult to come up with a more benign explanation than that. We firmly believe that Uh, As we saw in the ruling, the district court judge Hendricks, who heard the case, did not seem to be intimidated by the threat of defunding and uh, did agree to stay the impact of the ruling, uh, which now we are attacking the defunding provision in a separate lawsuit. And and so you guys, you're successful so far in the lawsuit with the Shawnee County District Judge uh, Larry Hendricks. And then you ask them, even though you're successful, you were the ones who asked him to put a stay on his ruling? It was the state that filed the formal request, but it was a request that was uh, communicated to the judge that both parties desire to stay. Uh, We, neither my co-counsel nor my client, have any desire to see the courts in Kansas closed. Uh, It's just a matter of before we could bring a lawsuit that would meet the grounds of ripeness, uh, which mm-hmm. is a doctrine that you must have an actual case or controversy, uh, 
to challenge the defunding provision, we needed a ruling on the constitutionality of the administrative change. So you could then go ahead and sue on, on the other issue. Yes, and we, we are now asking the district court in Shawnee County to rule that the threat to defund the courts is an unconstitutional violation of the separation of powers doctrine. Uh, there's also a separate legal principle. Kansas, like most states, has a provision protecting judicial salaries. Uh, these are very common measures that date back to the founding of the Republic when one of the main complaints of the colonies was that judges served at the pleasure of the king, and it was impossible to obtain a fair trial if the crown took an interest because the judges' continued employment depended on the goodwill of the sovereign. Right. And in America, where we firmly believe or profess to in separation of powers, it's essential that judicial salaries not be threatened if legislators disagree with one of their rulings. Uh, Matt Menendez, it, it, could it be said that uh, this uh, seeming intimidation by the governor, by the legislature, this, this seeming intimidation has already to some extent worked in that you know, you fought, you guys file a lawsuit, you guys win the lawsuit, and then, as you just told me, because you don't want to see the, the system shut down, you guys have agreed to a stay for the moment uh, on, on that court's decision. I mean, would you have asked for that stay had it not been for this provision that would otherwise shut down the courts? I, I mean... No, in that, in that case, there would not have been any need to seek a stay. We would have welcomed the uh, immediate impact. Uh, although, to, to be fair, in, in litigation, it is not uncommon to have temporary stays of decisions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, there are provisions to preserve the status quo ante pending the ultimate result on appeal. So the stay itself is not necessarily a particularly drastic measure, though it is one we likely would not have sought uh, were it not for the threat of defunding the Kansas judiciary. Yeah, I know. And that's that's what occurs to me. I mean, it's not outrageous that they stay the decision during appeals and so on and so forth, but it would be the other guys who would seek that stay for you guys to have to go along with it simply because you would hate to see, oh, the entire Kansas court system shut down uh, seems outrageous to me. Now, Brownback, uh, Governor Brownback, for his part at a news conference, was asked about this on Friday. I don't believe we have the audio, but I'll just quote what he said, and it was uh, it was really bizarre because his only answer was, you know, he was asked, well, wh will this decision shut down the court system? And he sort of responded uh, meekly, well, we have a court system, and we're going to have a court system. Uh <laughs> and, and and that's sort of all he had to say about it. Th th this entire situation is is incredibly bizarre to me. So what happens now? This There's a stay put on this case. You guys file another lawsuit concerning the constitutionality of the provision to defund the courts themselves. But don't all of these decisions have to work their way up to the Supreme Court and does the state Supreme Court? And then doesn't the state Supreme Court have a conflict of interest since this has to do with whether they'll you know, receive a paycheck or not or not? How do they decide whether to hear this case if everybody on the state Supreme Court should arguably recuse themselves from uh, hearing this case? Well, there is a doctrine in the law referred to as the rule of necessity. And that generally provides that if there is a case in which any judge that would hear the case would arguably have a conflict of interest, and it's essentially the same conflict of interest, then 
the judge has a duty to go ahead and hear the case. Uh, it, it is more important that cases be resolved. And this has happened um, on occasion, for example, as I mentioned earlier, many states have provisions that require that judicial salaries not be decreased, usually unless all state salaries are decreased equally. So you can't single out judges. And what has happened in some states, uh, legislators have given other branches of government cost of living increases while keeping judicial salaries level, often for quite a long time. And eventually, you will see a lawsuit by a judge arguing that that is a de facto pay decrease. And in those similar situations, judges have said that, yes, while the pay of a judge uh, is of interest to judges, any judge would be equally, arguably, conflicted. And so the judge is nonetheless able to go ahead and hear that decision. It seems to me, Matt Menendez, that this uh, provision uh, is not only completely uh, unconstitutional, but also completely unenforceable. I mean, it, it seems like a political acting out, essentially, from these uh, Republicans trying to send a message they can't win. I mean, if they win in this case, the courts, I mean, if they get what they want, or at least what they legislated in favor of, the courts, what happens? The, the, they're no longer funded. Everybody goes home. There's uh, havoc and anarchy in the state of Kansas. I mean, what what was supposed to happen uh, if this moved forward as it was foreseen by this bizarre law that Kansas Republicans passed? I wish I could tell you what they were thinking when they did this. Uh, they're there have been some statements made by some legislators that nobody ever actually intended for the courts to be shut down, but that's not what they passed. What they passed says if the outcome in a particular lawsuit came out a particular way, then the entire judicial appropriations was no longer valid, and that would be just a complete constitutional crisis. In the uh, intervening months since we last spoke, Matt, uh, in June, when you said that you had never seen anything like this, you'd never seen a bill, uh, a law that was passed like this, a situation like this. Uh, have you had time to find any uh, other laws that in any way are anything like this? Or are we still at the point where this is the craziest uh, frickin' thing we've ever seen? It's the latter. I, I have not been able to find anything that's closely or even roughly analogous to this, and no one has been able to point one out to me. So, uh, and to be honest, I, I would prefer not to see something like this again. I think this, this would be a horrible precedent if this were to encourage other lawmakers to attempt to threaten the judiciary, be it the federal or their state judiciary, with loss of funding. Um, and again, this is, uh, it's very troubling. If you go back to the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 78 talked about the weakness of the judiciary vis-a-vis the other branches mm -hmm. in that it does not have the power of appropriation. It does not have the power to execute laws, and it must be defended from attacks by other branches if those happen. And luckily, for most of our history, we have not seen too many attacks on the judiciary, but there are a troubling number of them now, and I believe this, this may very well be the most troubling of all. 
I and we talked a little bit about it last time we were on. Uh, I think about the irony here. Well, I'll I'll be generous and call it irony in uh, these right wingers out in, in Kansas who are claiming to be the most you know the the constitutional conservatives, the originalists, the you know who believe in the word of of law, the word of the Constitution, actually completely ignoring what you just described, Matt, and you know this notion that's built into our system of the separation of powers between. Three co-equal branches, executive, judicial and legislative and, you know, pretending to be the most conservative and doing what is seemingly the least conservative thing they could possibly be doing, which is essentially getting rid of an entire uh, one of those three branches. I've got just a minute or so here, Matt, before I let you go. Uh, Why hasn't the uh, the Department of Justice intervened in this matter or has this not yet risen to a, a, a federal it's, they haven't made a federal case out of it yet, so to speak. All of our claims arise under the Kansas Constitution. I think if it were the case that the judiciary were actually to shut down, there might be a federal issue. Uh, the federal government does require that states uh, have a Republican-type government, and if you did not have a judiciary, arguably that would be violated. That is, is a very obscure and seldom-referenced part of the Constitution because it is so obvious that I don't think anybody would have ever thought to change a system of state government to a non-conforming system. Yes. Uh, so. So, and that's a small R Republican, we should, we should add, uh, form yeah. of, of government. Um, what is, uh, very quickly, what is next in this case? What are we waiting for as far as the, the, the court agenda? Because uh, I'd, I'd love to follow this as it moves forward through to its bizarre conclusion. I believe that by the end of the month, the state will have filed a response to our lawsuit challenging the defunding provision, and the state will need to file its appellate papers if they wish. uh, Well, they have indicated that they will appeal our win on the administrative attacks on the Kansas Supreme Court. (laughs) This is so bizarre. Uh, Matt Menendez of uh, the Brennan Center's Democracy Program. Always good to talk to you, sir, and I, I hope to do it again in the future as we learn more about this case. Thanks, Matt, for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. Okay, we're going to take a quick bra- break, and we will be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Please stay tuned. <laughs> together brad friedman from bradblog.com here with the final few minutes of your broadcast today uh by the way if you missed any portion of today's program you can always download them at bradblog.com as well as over at itunes and if you do go over to itunes you can subscribe for free and then you can have them sent to you anytime you want just by uh, open up your uh, mobile app your iphone and uh, boom it'll be right there if and when you want it but when you are over at itunes Please give us a good review. It'll help everyone uh, else in the whole wide world find the Bradcast a little bit easier. And you might have to search for Brad Friedman, because if you search for Bradcast, 
it thinks you meant broadcast and it gives you everything that was ever made that has the word broadcast in oh, it. Oh, autocorrect. I should have been thinking ahead when I <laughs> named this thing. All right. Or your parents when they named you. Yes. Well, that's true. Uh, so uh, where am I here? Okay. Uh, coming together. A lot of times, you know, people ask me, well, Brad, why do you go on? You go on Fox News you've been on. You debate Ann Coulter. If you don't reach out, if you don't reach out, you can't bring people together. All you do is get further and further divided. And that doesn't mean you got to compromise what you believe in. That just means reach out. What kind of a world are we now living in where, uh, you know, people only talk to people who agree with them? Well, Bernie Sanders went out to uh, Liberty University yesterday. We played uh, several minutes of that here. Apparently a lot more than anybody else seems to have played from his speech at uh, Jerry Falwell's uh, Liberty University, the largest Christian college in the world, believed to be very right wing, uh, conservative, whatever conservative means. I've long argued uh, that people who call themselves conservative aren't really at all. And I think, by the way, we've got a lot of evidence that I'm right about that, given the fact that right now there's some, what are we, 16 or 17 candidates in the Republican race for 2016 uh, uh, presidential nomination. And the least conservative one is currently destroying everyone else in the race. So, uh, you know, conservative sounds good, but most of these people don't actually know what conservatism actually means. That aside, Bernie Sanders went out and explained what he believes in. He explained his populist policies to these students, to some 12,000 students at Liberty University yesterday. And uh, it seems he uh, he won some friends over with his uh, with his commentary, with his uh, speech yesterday. Here is some of the reaction from some of the uh, from some of the students at Liberty University, uh, courtesy of the Lynchburg News and Advance out there in Virginia. I really thought that Bernie spoke very well, considering where he was and he had a very good message. And I feel like it did really resonate well with the school and the student body for them not really agreeing with Bernie Sanders on many of the um, stances he believes in. So honestly, I feel like a lot of people did really take in what he said and took it to heart. Um, I, I thought his speech was very um, interesting to listen to. I don't necessarily agree with Bernie Sanders politically, um, but I totally agree that no matter what side of the political spectrum we're on, we need to find common ground. And I hope that um, Every student uh, that was here today gathered some valuable information in order to be more informed in voter when the time does come to elect our next president. I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good that we could have Bernie Sanders here. And um, even though his viewpoints are different than a lot of what Liberty stands for, I think it was still good for us to have a different point of view, um, just to be open-minded about it. So that we're not getting the same thing over and over again. I thought it was really good. I was glad that no one from everyone from Liberty showed their um, dignity and humility, and they showed respect to Bernie, even though we didn't agree with everything he said. And um, I give him props for coming here because that is hard. I uh, honestly. Um, 
out of everyone else, I was probably the only one who agreed with him 100% because I was like literally the only one who was standing. She is the only one in a crowd of 12,000. <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, mark my word, years from now, you're going to hear people saying, you know what, I was going to Liberty University, and then Bernie Sanders came and spoke, and for the first time, I heard someone like Bernie Sanders, and it changed my life. You watch. That's what they're going to say. Uh, more comments. Uh, Michael Lay, a sophomore studying uh, Christian leadership at uh, Liberty University, said he saw himself voting for Sanders if the election came to a matchup between Sanders and Donald Trump. He said, quote, even though I might not agree with him, I respect him the most out of all the candidates right now. The fact that he came here and spoke with us and at the same time was very blunt with us. I really appreciated that, Lay said. Sophomore nursing student Joseph Pappas said um, that Sanders brought up some important points about income inequality and health care. Pappas said, quote, it shouldn't be a situation in which someone goes to the hospital and just then finds out, oh, you had stage four terminal cancer. When they knew that they may have had an issue earlier, but due to the fact that they didn't have health care, they didn't want to go to the hospital. Uh, apparently, a Bernie made that point, and it got through to some of these people after how many years of uh, people talking about that as they were trying to pass uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, saying the exact same thing. And Republicans saying, oh, nobody goes without health care in this country. You just go to the hospital. You just go to the emergency room. Yeah, well. If you got stage four cancer, you probably don't know about it until you're dropping down. That's when you go to the emergency room. That's not health care. Frankly, that's death care. Uh, this uh, same nursing student uh, said he could be open to voting for Sanders, depending on who he'd be running against. This will be my first presidential election, he said. I don't feel like I would vote on party lines. I consider myself a conservative probably because he'd been told that he's a conservative. His parents told him he was a conservative. He says, but if a candidate showed me his plan and I thought it was a good plan, I would vote for him, regardless of if he identified as a Democrat or as a Republican. So there you go. Way to go, Bernie. Thank you for reaching out. Uh, that's what I, I wish more people do, were doing. And by the way, Bernie has called for... Uh, debates between all the parties right now on certain issues, on the environment, on health care, on the economy, but not just, you know, with the Republicans in their own stovepipe and the Democrats over here in their own stovepipe. But, you know, anybody who wants to come out and debate, man, would I love to see that. I also thought what was interesting about uh, Bernie Sanders' comments is that he spoke about values. You know, he, he came out right out front and said, you know, we're not going to agree on everything, but these are the values that we can agree on, you know, that, that children should not go hungry, for example. You know, and actual Christian values, which if a lot of these students pay attention to the actual policies of the Republican Party, I I think they'll see that they are not in line with, you know, Christian values. Oh, but that's, Christian values. Yeah. yeah. As long as somebody shows up and tells them about it, as Bernie Sanders did. So good for him. Uh, Desi Doyen, thank you very much. Our producer, Desi Doyen. My thanks to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. To my guest today, Matthew Menendez of NYU's Brennan Center for Justice. We will be, be back with you. Same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then... You can follow me, find me on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog, or drop us some email. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.